you're going to think that we, uh, you're going to think that we uh, did that this morning uh, because of this particular text. We did not design it this way, but we believe that somebody did. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was the first full-length animated film to be produced by Walt Disney. Walt Disney uh, released in 1937. It was adapted from the fairy tales um, of the brothers Grimm, not to be confused with the brothers Gibb. Otherwise, Snow White would have been singing "Ah, ah, ah, ah," staying alive as she <laughs> ran from the wicked queen. Now, if you were not alive. During one of the greatest decades of our country's history, the 70s, then you miss things like angel flight and pants and mullet haircuts and disco music. I'm sorry. <laughs> the tale is the story of Snow White who hides out in the woods with the seven dwarves to escape the evil queen. As you may remember, the story begins with the evil queen approaching her magic mirror every day to ask the question, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? Everyone is fine. Everything is fine as long as the mirror replies why you are, of course, fulfilling the queen's insatiable vanity. One day, something happened. Snow White had grown up. Queen was no longer the fairest, giving rise to a plot of murder. This is a kid's show. Murder, <laughs> escape, rescue of the seven dwarves, a poisoned apple, Prince Charming, and happily ever after. The real problem, of course, is all too often there is no such thing as happily ever after. Why? Because the problem of the queen is inherent in all of us. We want to know who is the fairest of them all, who is the strongest, the fastest, the best looking indeed, who is the greatest of them all. As Michael reminded us a couple of weeks ago, whether it's ESPN, the Oscars, or People magazine, we are obsessed with that question, who is the greatest, who is the prettiest, who is the sexiest, who's on top, who's the best. The truth of the matter is we all struggle with that question. And behind the question is the real issue. And the real issue is we are born performers. We want to know how I'm doing uh, compared to, especially compared to everyone else. How's my performance as a worker compared to my coworkers as a student? As a father, a husband, a mother, a wife, how do I stack up with my peers? How am I doing? Who is the fairest, indeed, who is the greatest of them all? Plagues us all. Turn your Bibles this morning in our continuing study of Mark to Mark chapter 9. We're going to find that Jesus uh, today has some strong things to say about that question and the attitude behind the question Look at the text with me, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and following, say this. From there, that is from the Mount of Transfiguration, up in Caesarea Philippi, and from the healing of that demon-possessed boy, they, that is Jesus and the disciples, went out and began to go through Galilee. They traveled south on their way to Jerusalem. He didn't want anyone to know about it. 
For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, Son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. They didn't understand this statement. They were afraid to ask. Came to Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's been their base of operation for the Galilean ministry for like three years now. Last time Capernaum's mentioned in this book, by the way. Came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way, they had discussed with one another which one of them was greatest. There you have it. There it is. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. This is the problem. See, even the disciples struggled with the question, who's the greatest? How am I doing? How am I, compared to Peter and James and John, because the disciples, you see, were an awful lot like us, born performers, strivers, with their eyes on, well, me, competing with everyone else. Not only that, they were... They were keeping track of everyone else, and they each thought themselves doing pretty well, well, by their own measuring stick, their own scorekeeping methods. Later, the week before the crucifixion, the mother of James and John will come up to Jesus and say, well, how about it, Lord? Why don't you let my son sit next to you in the kingdom, one on your left hand and one on your right? They're, they're they're pretty great boys, don't you think? And, and the other disciples, when they heard about it, they were infuriated. Why? Well, because they, they could hardly believe the insensitivity of James and John, who no doubt had put their mother up to the task. How can you ask such a thing right before he dies, right before he bears the sins of the world on his shoulders? Is that it? That's not it at all. They are angry because they were gunning for the seats. They had their eyes on number one. They thought themselves worthy of the honor. Who's the greatest? It's me. It's what matters. Notice, by the way, this discussion comes on the heels, immediately on the heels of Jesus' prediction of his own humiliation. <laughs> I came to be, not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom. For many. And the disciples, on the heels of that, are worried about who was the greatest. Jarring distinction between Jesus' humility and the disciples' proud desire for recognition. Jesus speaks of giving his life, they speak of gaining theirs, of status and privilege and recognition. So, why do you do? what you do. This is the second of three 
times in short order, chapters 8, 9, and 10, that Jesus gives a passion prediction. He's going to Jerusalem where he will be handed over, he'll be killed, and he will be raised again the third day. And each of those three predictions is followed by some failure on the part of the disciples, typically as they had their eyes on themselves and some act of pride or self-interest. In the first one, back in chapter 8, after Peter got it right, remember, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus gave his first passion prediction, and Peter has the audacity to pull him aside to rebuke him, not so, Lord, not while I'm alive, to which Jesus responds, and don't miss this, get behind me, Satan, you, you have your eyes on your interests, on man's interests, not on God, self-focused. How so? Well, Peter thought they were on their way to Jerusalem to set up the kingdom of, in which no doubt he thought he had a big part to play. Second passion prediction is this one we just read, followed by the disciples arguing about who was the greatest. Stop and think about that for a moment. The disciples had just come through a series of significant failures. First up on the mountain, Peter said, it's really cool to be here, Jesus. Let's build three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Elijah, and this was too much for the father who then said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, for once in your life, will you just, I would say shut up, but I know you're not supposed to say it, be quiet. And listen to my son. Then when they, got, they get back to the other nine disciples, they find them arguing with some scribes because they had been unable, impotent, to cast out demons. Looked at that last week. They had failed miserably. Jesus, understandably, is frustrated with them. How long am I going to have to put up with you? Now they're headed through Galilee on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus gives this second passion Prediction, do they get it? No, they don't understand it, but they're too scared to ask about it. Next verse, Jesus asks them, what were you discussing along the way? They're silent. That's an indictment, you see, because they were arguing about which one was greatest. Third passion prediction, Jesus, uh, James and John commissioned their mom Mommy, go ask Jesus if they can sit on either side of him in the kingdom, places of honor. We, we, we are the greatest. We deserve those seats. Stop right there a minute. When Jesus ascended into heaven, where does the Scripture say he was seated? The right hand of the Father, which means at his left hand is God himself and James and John think they deserve that seat. The point is, these guys suffered from narcissism, an unwarranted self-focus. Yeah. Let me give you the outline of the text before I preach the entire message. We're going to look at these verses where we're simply going to see the disciples' faulty view of greatness. They're their, their pursuits, which frankly uh, uh, form our view of greatness today, our society's view of greatness. And then Jesus gives the correct, or I could say the kingdom view 
of greatness. Let's, let's take a moment, though, to look at this second passion prediction. It's the, the shortest of the three. I will be delivered. I'll be killed. I'll be raised again. But there are a couple of important things to notice here. First of all, th- th- that first phrase is actually meant to be a play on words. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. The, the Son of Man will be killed by men. <laughs> the Son of Man. He will be killed by the very ones he came to save. Second, he will be delivered. The word could be translated betrayed, betrayed by Judas or by Pilate as he handed him over. Could be, or handed over, could be translated that way, to the hands of men. He will be handed over, not notice by men, but to the hands of men. And most agree this is what is called a divine passive God, you see, is the one handing Jesus over. It was the eternal plan of the Father carried out by the Son. It was the Father who handed His Son over to men. He, Romans 8.32, says, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up, that's the same word, handed Him over for us all. Well, after this second passion prediction, the disciples, they, well, they still don't get it. They don't understand, uh, though I, I'm not sure that Jesus could have made it any plainer. Mark, you see, has been making a case for the slowness, the dullness of the disciples. It seems to me the case is closed. They didn't get it, but they were too afraid to ask about it. Somehow they even understood, well, I think we're supposed to be getting this, still don't get it. it brings us to the text I want to talk about today. Jesus is talking about His coming death. They're talking about greatness. Which one of them is the greatest? So Jesus talks to them about true greatness in the kingdom. Remember, at this point, Jesus has changed His focus from the crowds to the disciples. He's teaching His disciples, which means He's teaching us. He's teaching us what true discipleship is all about. In fact, here, from here through the end of the chapter of verse 50, I think um, it seems like a, just a bunch of disjointed stories, but actually the underlying theme is true discipleship. And it is frankly quite different than what the world pursues. Let me say it this way. Living like this, will never get you on the cover of People Magazine or Sports Illustrated. Is that your goal? Don't do this. Mark says they got to the house in Capernaum, likely Peter's house. They stayed there quite often. Jesus, upon either hearing them arguing or knowing their thoughts, asked them what they were, had been talking about along the way. And from either shame or embarrassment, they were silent for a moment. You can see their furtive glances, perhaps looking to Peter. <laughs> say something, Peter. You always have something to say. However, this time he doesn't, so Jesus fills the silence. Now, let me stop right there. Can, can you imagine how the argument along the way must have unfolded. No doubt everyone at this point thought Peter might, might be the favorite. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and no one is mentioned in the Gospels more than Peter except Jesus. And, and Peter himself reminded them of some things as he claimed his own preeminence. After all, 
He would say, I was one of the three who got to go to the mountaintop at the transfiguration. I, I walked on water. Remember that? And whenever Jesus talks about us, he always puts me at the top of the list. And remember Caesarea Philippi? I got it right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember what Jesus said to that? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven. God talks through me. Does he talk through you? No doubt at this point in the discussion, someone chimed in. Yeah, you walked on water, but you almost drowned, so that's kind of a wash. That was a joke. Thank you. Sure, you were on top of the mountain, but God yelled at you, and, and right after God spoke you through you, so did Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Remember that? Certainly, number one is still up for grabs, don't you think? If greatness is based on performance, might be. Disciples thought so, so they argued about it. They each had a different opinion, and they all had different ways to, to grade. Maybe it was John. He no doubt thought so. I was up on the mountain too, and after all, I am the beloved disciple. <laughs> no, it can't be John. He's way too mushy. It's James the strong one. He's probably, he probably argued his brazen character and bold commitment to the Lord earned him the top spot. James had passion And yeah, someone pointed out, but you're always angry. You're calling fire down from heaven to burn people up, you son of thunder. You see, it depends on your grading system. Some thought Andrew was the greatest. It's not those up front guys like Peter and John. It's the behind the scenes guys who get the real work done. It's the Andrews of the world who are the greatest. And I personally think that's right. Come on, I worked on that one. (laughs) rest assured that the remainder of the group had their own self-preoccupied, pitiful, selfish, self-aggrandizing arguments as well. When compared to everyone else, it ought to be obvious I'm the greatest. Remember, this whole argument, these grading systems were all in the context of the twelve. Christ's followers, the future church. And this problem has been with us ever since. Corinth had the problem. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas, Peter. I follow Apollos, but I follow Christ. See, in the church today, yes, if you're grading system you see is numbers or success or influence or status or power or prestige, then success is it found in the biggest churches, the, the most books pl- published, who has the president's ear, the most dove awards, <laughs> who's the greatest, who's the most well-known, who has the most influence. Here's my question, is that kingdom greatness? You need to understand at this point that the Jews thought so. They had an entire grading system. The rabbis often wrote about it. In fact, they even thought they had figured out who would get to sit closest to God in the kingdom, right there ahead of the angels, like going to a wedding and you have the little name cards, you know who's really important because they're sitting closest to the bride and groom. This is why 
James and John were fighting for those particular seats. This was the prevailing thought of the day. Jesus is, su- is suggesting, listen to me, Jesus is suggesting when we get to heaven, the seating chart may be different than you think. You see, I have a feeling when the disciples had this argument, they, they were not saying things like, I'm the greatest because I'm the most needy. I, I, I'm, I'm the greatest because I'm, I'm the greatest sinner and God's grace is most evident in my life. I, I, I'm the greatest simply because I'm not the greatest. I'm the greatest because I serve. Now, for them, it was, who's the greatest? Who gets to sit next to Jesus? Who gets to tell other people what to do? Who will have the place of honor? Who will be served? Which brings us to our second point, is Jesus says, that's not kingdom greatness. Let me give you the definition of true greatness. And he took the position of a teacher by sitting down and calling the 12 uh, to himself. And he, and he makes this incredible statement. Now, I know we're like Bible people. Bible's our middle name and all that. Alliance Bible Fellowship. You guys are slow. Are you asleep? <laughs> I know you've read, the, you've read this stuff before and you get it and it doesn't shock you. It should. So what Jesus said. If anyone wants to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. (laughs) This would have been shocking. No one then and no one now sees greatness in being last. Who gets, well, except for maybe grade school, everybody gets a ribbon. Who gets ribbon for being last and in being a servant? No, greatness is in being first and being served. You have to understand what Jesus is doing. The true definition of greatness is found not in being served, but serving. And if that's not bad enough, it's not just serving, but serving the least in the kingdom. That's why he takes the child. Plato once said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? This is the prevailing thought of the day. And Jesus makes it a bit worse. He calls a child to himself and set him, it says, uh, although we don't really know if it's a him or not, set him before them. Further, he gathered the child in his arms. Make no mistake about it, to this point, the, the disciples had hardly even noticed the kid. This was the most unlikely picture of greatness anyone would have had. I mean, we're talking about greatness here, Jesus. What's the deal with the kid? Get the picture, a little child surrounded by 12 grown men. In what possible way was the child great, certainly compared to them? And Jesus, with firmness in his voice, steel in his eyes, says, this child has all of the ingredients for kingdom greatness. This time in history, children were totally insignificant. They had no status, no rank, no privileges. To say that they were overlooked would be a vast understatement. They were to be looked after, necessarily so, but not looked up to. And the word here is the word pideon, that is, little child. We should probably see 
a little toddler. Jesus calls him over. He toddles over, barely able to walk. Jesus sets him before them as he gathers him up in his arms. After a moment or two, the clamoring dies down. All eyes are fixed on Jesus, and he says something that would have totally shocked them, and I believe that it needs to shock us today. First, in Matthew, he says this. Now, I have resisted the urge to go to Matthew in our time together and try and stay in Mark, but, but, but they're arguing about who is greatest, and in Matthew, Jesus says this is, what is great, this is what greatness is. This is what he says. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as a child. Get that word humbles. They were speechless. Even the child was looking around going, huh, me, great? Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to be like this little child. Know this, throughout his entire ministry, Jesus has been switching all of the price tags of life. All of the things, listen to me, all of the things that we have thought valuable, the things that we pine for, the things that we have fought for all of our lives, Jesus says they are of no value, they are worthless. Greatness in God's economy is not found in privilege, it's not, uh, it is found in, in being least, in serving. Think of everything that he has said over the last couple of cha- chapters that were mind-blowing. If you want to live, you've got to die. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to be great, you, you must suffer. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. And if you want to be great, you must serve. What? Listen to what he's saying in terms of this no-count, insignificant little child. There is no value in strength. There's no value in status. There is no value in performance. There is no value in wealth, no value in stuff, no value in prestige or anything else that the world wants to honor as great. You want to be great in my kingdom, Jesus says, then you've got to let go of all of your comparisons, all of your self-focused attempts to make yourself look great, all of your performance. Greatness in the kingdom does not come from what you do. It comes from who you are. What was it about this child, any child, that made Jesus point him out? It was not his behavior, obviously. Anyone who's ever had a toddler knows that. It was not necessarily childlike faith, although we've heard that before. What was it? He says it was his humility and lack of concern for social status. It was a recognition of his dependence. Without others to take care of him, he would die. That's the point. Dependence makes you humble. When you are totally dependent on someone else for your life, it breeds humility. Now, (laughs) give that toddler a few years to grow up, start becoming self-sufficient, self-dependent. In fact, by the time he's a teenager, he knows everything. Give them some time to start becoming independent, and they start becoming less humble. They start looking to themselves, to their own abilities and their performance, and they start becoming proud. And Jesus says, There's, listen to me, there is no place in my kingdom for proud, self-sufficient, great-in-their-own-eyes kind of people. child is a picture of dependency which produces humility because true brokenness, understanding who we really are, produces humility. True believers, said another way, true believers are humble. And that is the picture of greatness. 
Notice we don't know the child's name. We don't know the child's age. We don't for sure know the gender. It does say he or his. Um, we don't really know anything about him or her. That's the point. This is not about us. It's about Christ and his kingdom. Nondescript child. Here's my question. Have you ever felt like a nondescript child in the midst of the kingdom? In the midst of disciples who seemingly walk on water as you walk by the likes of Peter's and James and John's, I have very good news for you. Greatness does not come in the things that you do. It does not come in your abilities or your performance. It comes through humility. In that sense, the thief on the cross is as great as Billy Graham. And so are you. I cannot wait to get to heaven to see who is sitting next to Jesus. I have a sense it will not be who we expect. There will be people striving and pushing, just kind of go with this, jumping up and down, trying to be recognized, and Jesus recognizing Jesus is going to pluck someone from the back of the crowd with eyes cast downward, unwill, unwilling even to look up, and Jesus will sit him right next to himself. Because greatness is in humility. Humbling ourselves is tough. We spend our whole lives uh, covering up our weaknesses, trying to impress everybody, trying to prove to everybody we're great. But we try to cover up our weaknesses, our inadequacies, our faults. We work hard at being independent, performing so we can be proud of ourselves. We may not argue with one another verbally who's the greatest, but it is what keeps us up at night. How am I doing? How's my performance? We try to cover shortcomings with power and status and position. Most of us don't like the idea of having to be insignificant, unimportant. And maybe that's how you felt for a very long time. You have felt pretty unimportant in the kingdom. The only thing you've ever really had is Jesus. No recognition, no status, no power. Very good news for you today. It is only those kind of people who are great in the kingdom. It is the kind of person that Jesus looks to populate his kingdom. L later, Jesus will say these incredible words that we don't even fully grasp. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. For some of us this morning, the problem is not our inadequacies, it's our strengths. Some of you do need to humble yourselves. You need to humble yourselves before your children, before whom you have been seen as powerful and strong and control and in charge, everything but humble. They've never seen you with the walls down. Some of you need to humble yourselves before your spouses, your husband, your wife. You've been waiting for him to change. You've been waiting for her to change. The Word of God speaks loudly to you today and says, unless you change, unless you humble yourself and become like a little child, you will never restore your marriage. And some of you are sitting there thinking, good, I hope my spouse is listening, and by that thought you betray that you don't get it. Who is it? Roommates, parents, 
coworkers, other people in your lives who have seen your wisdom, your power, your wealth, your status, but they've never seen you broken. They've never seen you humble. Because you've desperately tried all your life to cover up your inadequacies. I don't know what the Spirit of God wants to do in your life today, but I am trusting that some of you will altogether change your way of thinking. Back to Mark as we close, a couple more comments. Jesus gathers this little child in his arms and says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive the idea is just me, but the one who sent me. You see, not only do we need to change the way that we look at ourselves and our false pursuits and our definition of greatness, we need to change the way that we look at others. Again, children at this time were often overlooked, insignificant, unimportant. Jesus' point here is not that we should all work in children's ministry, although that's not a bad idea. Jesus' point is that we, sh- that, that, that we start looking at others and receiving others despite how the world grades them. If they are brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the context, if they are brothers and sisters in Christ, we receive them in Jesus' name, thereby receiving Jesus, in fact, receiving the one that Jesus sent. Is that the way we do it? In Matthew chapter 25, it's perhaps the most abused text of Scripture in the New Testament, one of the most abused. It's, it's the one that's the... It's the one separating the sheep and the goats, and it's the least of these, remember? And we have all of these least of these ministries to support social justice, and we need to go and give clean water to people who need it, and we need to go clothe people, clothe people who need it, and we need social justice, and that's all good, and we need to do that. That's not what Matthew 25 is saying. Matthew 25 is saying what this is saying. Inasmuch as you do this unto the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. Here's the point. Who do you serve and why? Those who make us feel good about serving? Those who can either give us something back or make us feel important by serving them? Jesus says, look for the least in the kingdom. Look for little children. Children's ministry. Look for those who can give you nothing back. Serve them. That's kingdom greatness. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I sense this morning that if we would listen to these words, not just gloss over them because we've read them many times before, but if we would listen to these words and indeed apply these words, that you would change the character and the culture of our church. If we would, would, would stop looking to serve in ways where we can be noticed, stop serving people who then in turn can serve us. We look for ways to care for people in unnoticed ways like Chet and like Libby. Serve in ways unnoticed, then we would be a, a church of great people and kingdom greatness. Father, help us to examine our own hearts, our own lives, to determine 
Why is it that we do what we do? Convict us of sin. Humble us. Keep us pointed toward Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.